Amen. To Jesus be the praise. To life-changing, grace-giving, all-forgiving Jesus be the praise. Father, please, by your Holy Spirit, now draw us to Jesus even more. We wait for your Spirit to speak, to draw us to him, to the living God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And because we are human, to Jesus, Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords. Amen. Well, belated welcome to the new year. Um, I want to uh, just thank joyfully and and, uh, genuinely Pastor Tracy for his two sermons over the past two Sundays on James chapter 4 and issues of anger. Such timely words. Uh, concerning a, a central issue in our our culture these days, anger in an, in an age of outrage, how we deal with it. Next week, we're going to start a short series on the vexing and challenging and sometimes irritating book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Uh, But today I wanted, before we go there, I I wanted to uh, bring us back to the year verse, the verse that was preached on last September uh, as the verse for us as a congregation during this uh, 2019-2020 ministry year. So I invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 is our year verse, page 995 of using the, uh, the the Pew Bible there. You know, I preached on this two Sundays in September, September 15, September 22. That was 119 days ago, September 15. So I don't know if you know what the statistics say, but in a situation like this, you know, I preach a sermon. Uh, Typically, Uh, Within an hour, say by one o'clock, you will have forgotten 50% of what I've said, which might not be a bad thing. Within a day, by tomorrow morning, you will have forgotten 70%. And by next Sunday, you will have forgotten 90%. So I have to be realistic um, I have to assume that most of you probably, maybe, what's our year verse this year? And probably didn't remember what I said about Second Timothy. We need this verse as much now as we did in September. The changes in our congregation, the changes culturally going on around us, we need this verse, strategic verse, because it talks about a spirit of courage and love and clear thinking. So this one-off sermon here is a refresher sermon. Different angle I'm going to take on the verse, some fresh content. It's all designed, though, to renew in you, in all of us, in us as a congregation, renew in us the power of 2 Timothy 1, 
verse 7. Now, in just a minute or two, I'm going to read it in its context. I'm going to read verses 6 down through verse 9. But let me platform the text before I read it. You have before you, opened here on on your smartphone, you have the last letter of the Apostle Paul. This is it. This is his last writing. And he's writing this in prison. He's been in prison before, and he's written letters from prison before. But he's always been released from prison. But this time is different. It feels different. The situation is circumstances are different. Paul knows it's different. So at the end of this letter, he writes this, 2 Timothy 4.8. Timothy, I've fought the good fight. Notice the past tense, the completed sense. I've I've fought it. it, it, it's over. I've finished the race. The picture there is God setting out a track for Paul to run. And he says, and I've done it. I've crossed the finish line. I've kept the faith. And now, as I approach death, the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness. Paul knows his time is up. And so he writes to Timothy, his spiritual son, and he asks him to push forward in faith, not give up, take the gospel that he learned from Paul and and live it forward with courage despite all the embarrassment and shame and difficulty that would go with living the gospel in Timothy's time. In the opening verses of the the letter, verses 1 through 5, Paul, he, he, he speaks very personally to Timothy. And he does there what I'm now going to do to you in a general way. In part, he's helping Timothy reset his identity in Jesus. Let me do that more generally before I read the verses, and then I'll read the verses. If you've been born again, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, then you have been raised to a whole new life. And you have a new identity. In Christ, you've been given everything that you need to live and to live life in a godly way. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You don't need to be squeezed into the world's mold. You are a member of the people of God. We are the people of God. Around you are your brothers and your sisters. And you are brother and sister to those around you who share the faith. So we keep one another. Support one another. And watch over one another in our walk in Christ. And you, finally, you have the Holy Spirit of God. You have his power. You have his love. You have his wisdom. Now here, 2 Timothy 1, 6-9. For this reason, for these reasons, I might 
paraphrasing. I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God that would be the Holy Spirit, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This is God's word. Holy Spirit of God, now take this text. Our hearts are open. We are listening. Please speak to all of us about the truths of this text, about Jesus and the Father and the Spirit and the call upon us to live lives of power and love and self-control in this age. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Karen and I have been married for 42 years, and I learned early on, uh, in a true and genuine way, that when Karen speaks, I listen. Okay? Uh, uh, And that's, uh, Karen tells the truth. She tells it straight. She tells it plain. She tells it unadorned. She just puts it right there, succinctly, precisely, pointedly, right to my heart. I've learned that in difficult circumstances. I've learned it in fun circumstances. The funniest example of when I learned that goes back to New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve in the early 90s. Okay, back, way back when we people in the U.S. used these. How many of you recognize this? Raise your hands unashamedly. This is a VHS tape, okay? This is the predecessor to the DVD, to the Blu-ray, to streaming, okay? Uh, This tape would hold a normal two-hour movie, single tape. Now, Karen had long wanted me to watch with her uh, the classic movie, Gone with the Wind, 1939 movie, about, uh, takes place in the Civil War era, about a woman named Scarlett O'Hare, not to be confused with the Chicago airport, um, Scarlett O'Hare, and, and kind of what happens tragically in her life in and through the Civil War and her love interests and this kind of thing. She wanted me to watch Gone with the Wind with her. And for years, I had absolutely no interest in watching it. She'd describe it, and I'd say, well, honey, it's a 1939 movie. You know, it's about some 19th century woman wandering around Georgia. 
The title tells it all. It, it's gone. It's gone with the wind. But that particular New Year's Eve, I was feeling romantic. And I love my wife. And I decided, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to really serve her. So I said, honey, let's watch Gone with the Wind. This is a day or two before New Year's Eve. So she went down to Princeton Library and she got the VHS tape for Gone with the Wind. What I didn't know was that Gone with the Wind is a really long movie. It's four hours. Which means that she got not one tape, but two tapes. I thought she'd only gotten one, and that's really important for the story. So, kids get put down to bed. We get settled. I take the VHS tape, I slide it in. We start to watch Gone with the Wind. And I tried really hard to get into the movie but it just wasn't happening. Um, you know, uh, the people, the places, the costumes, the stuff about the Civil War, the stuff with the, what's his name, the main guy there. It just, it just wasn't happening for me. And so then came the closing scene, two, two hours of my really trying, and then came the closing scene on that tape. And that scene... Uh, Scarlett O'Hare, she, she, she was like on a ridge or something like this and stuff is burning and there's flames and smoke and she's calling out, Tara, Tara, Tara. Now, Tara is the name of her house, but I didn't know that. <laughs> I just wasn't paying attention. I had no idea who Tara was. But I figured, I've done it. I've watched Gone with the Wind. So I turn to her and I say, oh, honey, <laughs> that was quite a movie. <laughs> and what an ending, I said to her, oh, what, a, what an ending. I mean, they're not even rolling the credits. They're just leaving you there in the rawness of that scene with the flames, the fire and the smoke and Tara, Tara. It's so moving. And she looks at me. She's just speechless. She just looks at me. And I, I kind of said, oh, 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 have I said something wrong? So I kind of blurted out, well, honey, honey, you got to help me out. Who's Tara? Is that the dog? <laughs> this is true. So she's just stunned. And then she tells me the plain truth. Matt. Tara is the house. This is not the end of the movie. There's another tape. You're only halfway. You have two more hours. Karen tells the truth. Straight, plain, unadorned. So two weeks ago, she said to me, the best book I've read in 2019 is a book called The J-Curve. Here it is, The J-Curve, written by Paul Miller. J, as in Jesus, the letter J, Jesus. J as in, you start here at a point in life. 
And then you, like a J, you descend down. You descend down maybe because of your sin, maybe because of suffering, maybe because of difficulty, maybe because of the calling and the challenges of love. You descend down. And if you're a Christian, at a certain point as you descend down, the resurrection of Christ kicks in. And the Holy Spirit kicks in. And the hope of the gospel and the truths of God's words, that they kick in and you start to ascend. And you go higher and higher. And you actually wind up at a point, like a J, higher than where you began. You descend down in order to become that much more deeply changed. That much more deeply filled with faith. That much more Christ-like, just like a J. You see it. The letter J is a simple picture, a memorable capture of one of the most important New Testament truths. Paul states the truth right here in 2 Timothy on the other column of the right-hand page, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's 2 Timothy 2, verse 11. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. In other words, the thing I'm about to tell you is something you can bank on. It's rock solid. The saying is true, trustworthy. If we died with him, in other words, if we descended down into the J, if we died with him, we will also live with him. We will rise up to the higher point. Jesus says the same things in the gospel. Uh, Here's from uh, Luke chapter 9. If you want to be my follower... You must say no to your own way. There's descending down into the J. Descending down into the trough. Say no to your own way. Take up your cross. There's descending down into the the J. Take up your cross daily. Personally, I think the most charged word, most significant word in this verse is that word daily. Take up your cross daily and follow me. For if you try to hang on to your life, if you refuse to go down into the J, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, if you go down to the day for the sake of Jesus, you will save it. Jesus there, Paul, they're talking about what was Jesus' own experience, Jesus' own reality. I mean, the J is not in the New Testament simply because it's a nice kind of thing. It's because it's, it, it, it's Jesus all over. Here's Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Watch the J here. Talking about Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, our Savior, our God, our King. You must have, Christians, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, so here's where we're starting now with the J. Though he was God, he's God. Though he was God, he did not 
think equality with God the Father is something to, to hang on to, to cling to. So now he's, he's going to start to descend down into the jail. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. This is a deep J. And he was born as a human being. God forgot, this, this is a really, really deep J. And he, when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died. Well, this is a really deep J. And it's even deeper. He died a criminal's death on the cross. Now watch the J come up. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. Uh, Every tongue in heaven and earth and under the earth confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, J. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that Jesus' J-curve and our J-curves are are alike. They're the same. There's a similarity there, but they're not the same. Let me quote from Miller and and the book, The J-Curve. The J-curve is the shape of the normal Christian life, and that's true. Jesus, Luke 9, uh, take up your cross daily. This J-curve pattern should be playing out in a Christian's life all the time. It's the shape of the normal Christian life. Our lives mirror Jesus. But you must keep in mind that Jesus' J-curve atones for our sins. He descended and did all this in order to die and be crucified and rescue us from our sin. It atones for our sins, but our J-curves do not. His J-curve is once for all. He's now seated at the right hand of the Father as a, as a high priest who's done what he was called to do. It's, it, it's, it's done for him. But ours, we all have multiple J-curves that echo his. Now, all this relates to our year verse. Because in our year verse, as is often the case in Paul's writings, you have the J-curve. This is a a J-curve text. I want to take the J-curve and I want to place it on top of 2 Timothy 1.7 and show you how this text can help us with one of the most vexing issues, persistent problems that you and I face in following Jesus today. And that issue, that problem, is embarrassment about Jesus. Embarrassment about the gospel. Being embarrassed about telling people the good saving news of Jesus. Being embarrassed to identify yourself with Jesus and his people. If you go back to 1995, those of you who were alive again and Christians will remember the the premier Christian contemporary music group, DC Talk. 
1995 was the year of their best-known song, Jesus Freak. And here is the lyric, the, the refrain from the song. What will people think when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak, when they find out that, 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 I, that I follow Jesus, that I trust his gospel? What will people think? What will people do when they find out it's true? There's a cultural bias, a cultural force against being a Christian today. And it is stronger today than ever in our particular world. So let's see the J-curve, 2 Timothy 1.7, and see how it can help us with this fear of the gospel. First half of the J-curve. Paul helps Timothy see his heart problem. Look at the text. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, God gave us a spirit not of fear. So that's the first half of the verse, and that's, that's the descent down part of the J. Timothy had a very real problem. He struggled with fear, with cowardice. God has not given us a spirit of fear, Paul writes. Now, that's not a throwaway line for Paul. No line in Paul is a throwaway line. You don't say something like that unless there's a situation that calls for it. I'm not going to say to you, hey, watch out for the hot coffee if there's not someone walking behind you who's carrying a tray of hot coffee. It's just not the kind of thing you say unless unless there's a situation. Same thing here. Paul's saying this because Timothy's struggling with fear and he's struggling with a particular kind of fear. Because the word that's translated fear here is not the normal Greek word for fear. Paul uses it only here and it doesn't really occur elsewhere. A related word appears a few times in the Gospels. Let's look at one of those instances. It's Mark 4.40. The story here, what's going on, is Jesus is in the boat with his disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee, and they're in the middle of a storm. Jesus is asleep. The disciples are freaking out because of the storm, and so they wake Jesus up to do something. And he says, why are you so afraid? There's, There's the closely related word, afraid. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And that's an exquisite illustration of the particular sense of this word, fear. The distinct meaning of this fear word is a state of fear because of a lack of moral strength or faith. Faith is in short supply with those disciples in the boat. And Jesus rebukes him. You're you're fearful. Some translations, therefore, translate that Mark 440. Why are you so cowardly? That gets at the sense of this word. Why are you so cowardly? Do you still have no faith in who I am and in what I can do in and for and through you? Now, there were plenty of reasons why Timothy should be nervous about his faith and cowardly about his faith. Paul mentions some. Look at verse 8. Paul says to Timothy, Therefore, 
because you don't have the spirit of cowardice. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Here's the first reason, the testimony of our Lord. In other words, the message about Jesus, the message itself, the gospel, which includes things like crucifixion back in the first century. Crucifixion was an abhorrent idea. You just didn't talk about it. It was so gruesome. Crucifixion, death, the shedding of blood, divine judgment falling on Jesus to rescue people from hell, divine wrath, wrath and hell and judgment and blood and death. These concepts didn't go down well in the first century and they don't go down well today. It just rub human beings the wrong way. Paul goes on. Don't be ashamed of the testimony and don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. It's not just the message itself. It's the dangers, the the baggage, if I can use that word in, in a very strict sense, that goes with it. I mean, Paul is in prison. That was not a glamorous thing. That was not a feel-good thing. That was a shameful thing. And so Timothy might be sitting there saying, there's no way I'm going to identify with the gospel right now because people might say, do you know Paul, the one in prison? Are you one of them? Are you with him? Reasons again to be embarrassed and shameful and timid about the gospel. And that was then... And that is now. And there are plenty of reasons today to be embarrassed about your faith in Jesus, to be embarrassed about the gospel message itself, to be embarrassed about all these things. And and we know it's wrong, but still we're embarrassed. And we are now at the bottom of the J curve. Timothy and us, we have been taken down to the bottom of the J curve. Our weakness, our sin, our need, these things have been exposed. But there's more. You did not receive a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self control. Second half of the J-curve, Paul helps Timothy recover courage. I love what Paul does when he says, we receive a spirit of power and love and self-control. I also love what Paul does not do. Let me start with that. What Paul does not do is he doesn't sit there and tell Timothy, you know, come on, Timothy, buck up. Get with the program. Be obnoxious and just go out there and just, just, just open your mouth and say something about Jesus. Will you please just do it? He does not do that. Instead, he tells Timothy, well, because you have the spirit of God, you have through that spirit, the ingredients, the three ingredients that you need to overcome that kind of fear, that timidity, that cowardice. First of all, Timothy, you have courage, spirit of power, spirit of conviction, Spirit of resolve. In other words, Timothy, you can do this. 
And you can do this reasonably well, as he will develop later. And that's the place for all of us to start. When it comes to any sort of cowardice about the gospel, believing that we cannot share the gospel, that there's no way I could ever let so-and-so know that I'm a Christian. When we start to talk that way to ourselves and believe that, those are lies. Let me push this down into specifics. We're all human beings here. I hope all of us are Christians. If you're a human being and a Christian, then there is, I guarantee you, there is someone in your life with whom you have not been straightforward and unadorned about your faith in Jesus or about the gospel of Jesus. Someone that you've been too frightened, too nervous, too timid to let them know. And you may think, oh, there's no way I could ever share the gospel with that person. In fact, let me pause right here like I did in the earlier service. Let me give you five, ten seconds to think of the name of a person in your life, friend, family member, co-worker, neighbor, someone with whom you have not yet been straightforward about Jesus. Who is it? You may think you could never share the gospel with that person. Or if you did, it would be so, so it would lead to so many problems. What Paul is saying here is you have not received a spirit of fear. You have received a spirit of power, of resolve, of conviction, of courage. You can share Jesus with that person. Second, you received a spirit of love. In other words, secondly, you, you have compassion. I mean, no one is served. No one is served when you ram the gospel down a friend's throat. But Paul's saying here, you, you, you can talk about Jesus for the best of reasons. Love. I, I remember, I could never forget, the worst moment of my ever talking to anyone about Jesus. I was a young Christian. That doesn't suggest, therefore, that as an older Christian, I have it right. I don't. But this is the most tragically consequential moment. I was a young Christian very enthusiastic about Jesus. I guess as I am still today. Jesus is my life. And my father, Italian Catholic, he, he, he was not happy at all with my new faith. And so we were talking about the gospel. My dad was a, 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 a my dad was the kind of person, he'd walk in a room and like everyone would just turn to him. It's just this huge presence so we were talking about the gospel, and he, he just, you know, th- there was no way he would even wanted to 
to, to begin to think about the gospel. And I was getting more and more frustrated. I was like 19 years old and I knew how to do the anger thing really, really well. I still do. Um, and I was just getting more and more frustrated. And finally, I said to him, and I thought I was doing God a favor. I said, well, dad, you're just going to hell. Oh, my. I, I, I didn't realize until like the next day what a stupid move that was. It took 30 years, 30 years to undo that. My dad told me at that point, never talk to me about this again. And he meant it. And it wasn't until about a year or so before he died that he changed that. And he then heard the gospel and he became a Christian. This is another story in itself. Very moving story. But, you know, for 30 years, because of my stupidity, I, I didn't do it out of love. I did it in order to, you know, score a point in the argument, put my dad down, you know, get angry with him. You don't have to share the gospel that way. You have the spirit of love. You can listen to someone. You can understand their concerns. You can understand their reluctance to share the gospel. You can understand their obstacles to faith. You can understand their pain. You have the spirit of love. Finally, you have the spirit of self-control. Now, this, this word here, this is a really difficult word to translate. Uh, and, you know, you go to different translations and they're kind of all over the map with it. It's a very distinctive Greek word. It has a kind of a cultural Greek concept to it. So it's really hard to bring it over into English. Different translations handle it like self-discipline or self-control, like here. Others will say sound mind, sensible thinking, sound judgment, prudence. I'm going to go with clear thinking. As Christians with the Holy Spirit, we have the spirit of clear thinking. We're able to think about things with the help of the Spirit. We're able to think with wisdom and insight and knowledge and planning and understanding and practical skill and humility and input from others. This is the kind of thinking that doesn't get carried away in the moment, doesn't act in reaction mode, and that sees the person and the situation the way God sees it. You have the Spirit of clear thinking. And sometimes it may require getting input from others, praying through something patiently, searching scripture, but you have the spirit of clear thinking, of power and of love as well. It's no wonder that Paul goes on then in verse 8 and says to Timothy, therefore, don't be ashamed about the gospel of Jesus, about the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed about it. The world needs Christians today more than ever. The world needs us to work against evil, injustice. Next two Sundays, typically, 
annually we take the next two Sundays one at a time and we, we pray around some major injustices in our world today. Next week, abortion. The week after that, excuse me, I got it reversed. Next week, racism. And the week after that, abortion. The world, the world needs us to work against these things. The world needs us to work on a personal level against things like resentment and promiscuity and selfishness and pride and greed. But the world also needs us to work against what has been called gospel poverty. Cluelessness about what it means to be a Christian. Cluelessness about what the gospel is. Cluelessness about why Jesus came to earth and what he did and why. Total cluelessness about those things. The world needs you and me to not be ashamed about the message of Jesus. The world needs you and me to live in the spirit of power. And love and clear thinking. So now, now we need to pray. I'm going to pray for you, for me, and I'm going to pray for that person whose name you identified about 10 to 12 minutes ago. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, you were never embarrassed about the gospel, about why you came, who you were, who the true God is. Never ashamed. I mean, you may have been, attempt- you may have been tempted, but you, but you never gave in. Praise be to your name. And so now... I pray for your spirit, the spirit of power and love and self-control. I pray for your spirit to fill us corporately and individually so that we would not be ashamed of the testimony about you. Help us, each of us, particularly in relation to, to the, the person whose name we identified a, moment, a, a couple minutes ago. We pray for that person that you would give us the spirit of power and love and clear thinking. And we pray these things for the name and the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.